How much time do you want for your progress? progress. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Clatter Chatter on Things That Matter, the podcast that is intellectually engaging, theologically reflecting, encouraging sociologically, imagining ways in which we can live. Thank you for spending this short amount of time with us. We promise you that you will not regret a moment of it. Shout out to Trevor Smith and V.J. Herbert for commissioning this fantastic music to get our minds going on things eternal, positive, and fulfilling life's purposes. So I'm excited today for our Dear friend, special guest, commentator on everything, but today we are just going to have a necessary conversation, so sit back, relax, join me, Dr. Lisa Johnson, sociology faculty at Chico, California, California State University. We met in Lincoln, Nebraska. How about that? God has a sense of humor. Two Southern girls find their way in Lincoln, Nebraska. And here we are today talking about stuff from defund the popo to especially the controversy around Lil Nas X. Come on, Dr. Lisa Johnson. Let's (laughs) greet each other. You know what, uh, Pastor Carla, I, I love you to death. Whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to do. Whenever you ask me to be there, I'm going to be there. So I am very, very happy to be here. And yes, let's go ahead and tear it up. All right, let's, <laughs> let's just talk about it. Because, you know, there has been so much. And, and just share a little bit about your work, uh, first of all, so that so that folks who need to know credentials Hey, this sister is heavy. No joke. Come on. And she loved Jesus. Go ahead, sis. Uh, I am from Atlanta, Georgia. I was born, okay, triple, triple threat Southern. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and I raised my son in Charleston, South Carolina. So triple threat Southern there. Um, yay, Farrell High School, 1984. Um, you want to know something about me? I know you want to know credentials, but I love telling people that I flunked out of college. Go ahead. Tell your story. Um, <laughs> I love telling people I, I flunked out of, out of the university of Georgia. And instead of a degree, I got a baby and, um, went ahead and, and did my thing, lived in poverty, tried my best to raise that child, um, and did not go back to college until I was 37 years old. And that's when I went to Charleston Southern University. So put a pin on that fruit because tell All us right. what he's doing. And 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 so the fruit don't <laughs> fall far from the tree. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but come on, that's talk your right. talk. He is a, a music teacher. He is head of the choral division in a high school in North Carolina. So he teaches music, but he teaches it from a sociological stint because he was raised by a woman who was studying sociology the entire time. So he has me in the back of his head, um, you know, singing bass, singing opera. He sings opera in four different languages. 
and loves Paul Robeson, loves everything Black, um, but teaches it in a very white county in the mountains in North Carolina. He has also received uh, Rookie Teacher of the Year two years in a, in a row um, and is doing very, they love him. He's His little choral group is selling out and he they travel together and everything. They have actually come to Atlanta and gone to Six Flags and done the thing. So he's doing very, very well. Thank you. So don't get it twisted on the configuration of family and how powerful. It does not matter how society <laughs> creates family or says what family systems are supposed to be. You did that thing. God did that. I have no idea how that happened. God did that. Amen. Okay, so keep on rolling. You know, I had to put that out there because some people get confused about what success is and how success is uh, uh, measured. But we know, especially in black communities, success by having a powerful parent. Whatever that parent configuration is, it could be a grandparent that's a parent. It could be a biological parent that's a parent. It does not matter as long as there are consistent behaviors and expectations that are high. (laughs) All right, go ahead. That's right. That's another song. And and I will say that I did not raise him alone. My my father, my sister helped to raise him. Uh, My churches, because I was a member of several (laughs) churches growing up. They all helped. Um, We were members of really, you know, I made sure that we were involved in really serious communities that honored him as a black man, um, as a black male. So um, I went back to college in um, 2003 at Charleston Southern University, which is a Southern Baptist college in Charleston, um, and then thought I was done. Um, but I was trying to get him into college. And so it was really difficult. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to fill out the paperwork. I was like, what do I have to do to get you to fill out this paperwork? He said, take it with me. So I picked some school. I didn't I didn't know. I went, you know, to my advisors over at uh, Charleston Southern. And I said, okay, my kid wants me to apply for graduate school. Help me figure out which one to apply to. Um, we went and we picked University of Nebraska thinking, you know, maybe they they certainly won't take me and I can finish this exercise with my son, get him off to college and go ahead because I already had a job. Well, then I got a full fellowship to the University of Nebraska and he called everybody. He was like, my mama going to grad school, my mama going to grad school. Um, I think what he was doing was trying to avoid me being a helicopter parent, because I would have been an excellent helicopter parent. I would have been at his college every day, all day. But um, I ended up getting that fellowship, went to University of Nebraska, got my PhD in sociology from um, there, and then received this job um, as an assistant professor at California State University in Chico, um, as an assistant professor on the tenure track um, of sociology. Now, my specialties are social psychology, um, social and racial inequality, and race and ethnicity. And so I do mixed methods research, um, which is sort of a mixture of qualitative and quantitative. And I also do um, participatory action research, which means that you get involved sort of on the ground and get people involved in the research and they help you to design the research. And then they help you to 
foster what type of questions you want to ask and how you want to go about this action and then help you to write on it as well. So those are the things I do. That's who I am. Now, I know you want, I want you to talk about your peer-reviewed research in the academy that's like the creme de la creme. People write, <laughs> people self-publish, people do all of that kind of stuff. But when you have scholastic acumen that places you in a peer-reviewed journal, that sets your name in stone for scholarship. Talk about that. What you write? Oh my gosh. Okay. You just really doing the thing, Kyla. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I have um, two papers published in peer review journals right now. Um, and then two that are um, in what we call a revise and resubmit status. Um, one is a theoretical piece that was done with, um, my mentor, Dr. Lori Janelle Dance, um, at the University of Nebraska. And that is about being outsiders within, um, being Black women in the academy, and then researching people who were from marginalized groups. So that's about, you know, my research that I did with South Sudanese women and the journey that I had to take being a black woman um, interviewing African women, right? Because so many researchers in time, so many researchers, white researchers all the time have been interviewing black people and doing you know, research on African people and just swearing they knew who we were and reporting it from a white supremacist standpoint, whether they knew that they were reporting it from a white supremacist standpoint or not. And so I wanted, when they do that type of research, then Black people read this work and we don't see ourselves in their work because they weren't talking about us in the first place. They were talking about some imagined view of us um, through their own lens. So um, the dissertation research that I did attempted to correct that. And this piece was about my journey, even having to put myself in check um, doing work with African women and the assumptions that I made, um, you know, because we were all black, right? <laughs> Trying to figure out, you know, and they put me in check. Um, we had, they came back and re redesigned my entire thing and said, you don't, you know, but that took a lot um, of humility. That took a lot of humility for a researcher to allow um, herself, particularly, I, I was a never married single mother and I was, I raised my son in poverty. So already I had some sort of stuff going on internally, right? Mm -hmm. um, with trying to, some imposter syndrome and all of this, with trying to attempt research. So then to turn around and have to bring myself down after I thought that I had already been down. Right. I thought I had already been, you know, sort of in, in, on the lowest of the totem pole, but I had to bring myself down again and actually give my participants the power in the research. And this is not something that researchers are even trained to do quite typically. If we are, you know, having to admit that the academy itself is a white supremacist mm -hmm. operation. Okay. Um, and it has been sort of stymied um, by people in power who wish to exert their power at all turns. 
So then black people or people from marginalized groups who do research really have to sort of wrestle with ourselves about what, how we distribute power, how we take that power back, how we give the power to the participants, because we don't want people, you know, doing to our participants, we don't want to do to our participants what white supremacy seems to have done to us so long, even back to the travel dialogues, right? You know, people were traveling and they report that these people in Africa seem to be so uncivilized. We don't want to do that to our brothers and sisters. So we have to go through a whole lot of soul searching and reflection to make sure that we are not repeating and um, reproducing inequalities in our research when we talk about our brothers and sisters. So that's the first article. The second article is about students um, and, and the university response to marginalized students. That's just came out this Tuesday. Um, it's about the ways that marginalized students for years, um, and you know, I, I probably made some people mad. This was at my school. We started, I started a freedom school at my school based on the old Mississippi freedom schools, right? And so I started a freedom school. Um, it was my attempt at um, uh, taking a stab at Black student retention. We only have a, black, a 2% Black population in my school. It's a rural California uh, town uh, in Northern California. Everybody thinks about California and they're thinking about LA and San Diego. Nope, this is not it. This is Northern California. You may as well be in, you know, I don't know, Snellville, Georgia. Um, and <laughs> The students, the Black students here had been trying to say things to the university and to tell the university how they needed to be supported. But over the years, the university had not really been listening to them and it was stunting their academic growth. So um, we devised this freedom school to first of all, sort of help Black students to understand some of the things that they may have missed in their K-12 experience or that people did not um, give to them in their K-12 experience, just about social support, okay, just about the ways that they could maneuver inside the classrooms and things like that. Um, and then we said, okay, now you need to talk back to us and tell us about your experiences and tell us about you know, how you're going about uh, engaging with the university community and, and what's going on in this small town of Chico. This is, um, you know, one of those towns that's actually really, really white. Um, it's a 2% Black student population, but it's also a 2% Black population in the town itself. Mm -hmm. um, so you need to tell us a little bit about your experience. And what came out of that was an article that addressed how the university administration responded to the students when the students tried to use their voices. Um, it's a very serious uh, telling um, piece about how administrations reproduce white supremacy and how in some instances they use black and brown folks to help them reproduce inequalities um, that hinder success for black and brown students so that's that's yeah part of what I do is I, I 
I mess things up. <laughs> Sometimes. There's nothing wrong with being a disruptor. A disruptor. A, a disruptor. Though, though, that's great. That's right in the line of, of the Jesus movement. And, you know, as you were talking, I just, I went back to my experience at a predominantly white institution as an undergrad. And I, um, when I, 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 my, all of my life, I was going to an HBCU. That was just my rite of passage. And as a matter of fact, um, three weeks before the semester was to begin, I had been accepted at Howard, had my roommate, et cetera. My oldest brother was a Howard alum, and he told my parents that it was too dangerous. This was in 87, that I was a country bumpkin, basically, and that I needed to, I wasn't ready because D.C. was the murder capital of the world. Now, I grew up in a small, rural, predominantly white community. When I say small, it's still population 10,000 or less. That's That was my orientation, but it was quite multicultural. We had great diversity in retrospect that didn't even realize what a privilege it was to grow up in this small rural community because we had folks from Thailand. My pediatrician was from Thailand. I had, you know, uh, um, the, the, the dentists were, were uh, first to second generation from the Holocaust. Uh, you talk about uh, just a multicultural experience. Folks from India on the motel, the Patel family. I mean, it was just a deep, a deep, interesting um, space in which to grow. And so um, my high school journalism teacher, her husband, uh, he's now deceased. He's my a state senator, um, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Sharp. And they had made, um, they saw my pain. And, um, and so uh, somehow they finagled me. Uh, I got a, the president scholar. I was a president scholar three weeks before the semester began at Southeast Missouri State University. Best thing that happened in my life for me to go to this predominantly white institution rather than Howard University. Because in retrospect, I thought, you know, I would be one of many at this predominantly white institution. I found my voice for real. And as a presidential scholar, my desk was next to the president's. He consulted with me, Dr. Bill Stacy, to this very day. He had, he was like an amazing administrator he retired as president of university of tennessee at chattanooga uh-huh. um and uh-huh. i have i i was able to uh, i mean it, i can't even tell you what that did i that flew in the air i flew in an airplane for the first time in my life to go lobby for resources with my university president and folks on campus were trying to figure out where this black girl come from <laughs> who's sitting next to Dr. Bill Stacy? And I mean, it wasn't just, I mean, I, you talking about feeling empowered. So we led protest. We didn't want to go to school on Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. So we rallied these students. Look, we're not going to go on January 15th. It wasn't necessarily a, a holiday in mass, but we took it. And we said, no, we're not doing this. We're going to fight the power, you know, public enemy, all of that. And what's so sad is that the pendulum has swung so far back. It's Mm -hmm. almost like all the movements. I always tell my, the students that I teach in my race relations class, I always say growing up in the eighties wasn't bad. (laughs) Number one. I mean, it really wasn't bad when you, when you think about life was good, seventies and eighties, life was good for real. 
You know, we had gone through this little integration stuff. We were the products of integration. If we wanted to integrate, we could. We we didn't have to worry about credit cards because that wasn't really available. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. If you didn't have it, you didn't get. If you didn't have the money, you didn't get it. Right. Yeah. It wasn't by now pay later. That was like mm-hmm. that. That didn't happen until the nineties, and so this this inequalities just started growing with mm-hmm. this uh, in this capitalistic culture around right. credit. And right. and when I say you know y'all, I I feel sorry for you because y'all are in a whole lot of debt more than what I could ever imagine, and yeah. most of it is because of higher education. Yeah. Students who want to go better themselves get in debt so that mm-hmm. they can better themselves in their community. But here's the thing: so when you think about this academy and the division, the dichotomy of of it all, and and I was in conversation with someone a few weeks ago about plagiarism you know yeah. how why why is plagiarism something serious when the academy stole everything everything from ancient civilizations we everything. can start with the with the greeks stealing from the egyptians stealing you know what i'm saying and then we get this everything. culture and mm-hmm. of arrogance to say i'm the gatekeeper and right. so so you got to come to me i'm going to be the one to say that you, you know something. Are you kidding me? No. That's how it is. You steal something and then you make the policy so that nobody can steal what you stole from you. There yes. you have it. And that's so <laughs> disruptive. That is so yes. ugly, so hostile. And so yes. so here's the thing. So I want to say this too, and I know we're going to have other conversations because I want to put it all in into tonight, <laughs> today, but I know we're going to keep on talking. But I also want to talk about this research that you and I are doing um, mm-hmm. uh, through the support, through this grant that we we have um, sort of received from the Lilly Foundation and yeah. uh, the work that we see. And and I want to say this because you brought this up about the the community of the church Sometimes the black church is relegated to just preaching and minstrel shows. That's how most people who don't have as much melanin as we have see us. We're the choir. We're preaching. That's it. But they don't really understand what it means to have your child's village in the whole church where where you got, if you have a child, uh, and I've seen it. You everybody's kid bouncing on everybody's lap, especially if your mother's singing in the choir and your right. daddy might be on the deacon board. So who's going to watch the kid? Somebody got to do right. with the kid. So and so right. you become everybody become Miss so and so, Auntie so and so, Uncle so and so, whether they are biologically related or not. That's called yeah. family, and that's why and we those say kids go with the with the family to choir rehearsal. What you say? Those kids go. To Bible study, mm-hmm. they go to United Methodist Women's Meeting. Mm-hmm. They can go to the fish fry on Friday <laughs> and the car wash on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm a church girl. I was raised <laughs> in that church. It's, it's for real. That's right. And no, it, I didn't just have a mother and a father. Mm-hmm. You know, I still have elders back at in in Atlanta mm-hmm. at my church down there. Mm-hmm. That's very true. And That's you know, they're true. praying for you. Yes. And, and they might send you a piece of change or a, a birthday card or just I'm thinking yes. of you, a phone call, you know, just holding you up and knowing. And, and and that is uh, and, and I think that's one of the challenges that we're seeing, because 
you know, I've, I've tried to study this and I've had so many people ask these questions, like when did the black church change? And, and Mm -hmm. for me, I never knew that the black church was anti-gay. I never knew that. That was not how I was raised in the South where I grew up because in retrospect, we, I didn't have the language that we have today in terms of transgender identity um, or, or LGBTQ. We had, you know, you could hear people use what we call now derogatory terms, but it wasn't to divide. It was to honor that particular identity. And so in the missionary Baptist church of my mother and my great grandparents to help establish, it was not unusual to see cross dressers, if you will. It was not really? unusual. It was like, and I, I won't use the name because I know folks in my hometown might be hearing this. I hope, mm-hmm. but it was like, okay, yeah. I mean, hair pressed that you know just beautiful just absolutely fully expressing and and the thing started pivoting i think with the rise of the religious right i had no there were never any damning anybody to hell i never heard those sermons from the ame church that i grew up in also because i grew up in all the churches that's how i was in the rural First, first and third was Missionary Baptist. Second and fourth was AME. Fifth Sundays and special programs. We went to Church of God in Christ. But mm-hmm. I never heard publicly. I, it Not may have been some side. It may have been some sidebar conversations in somebody yeah. else's place, but it wasn't in my earshot because I was a nosy kid. I want <laughs> curious. I wanted to know everything about everybody. But there was mm-hmm. never my my black church experience was this. People were coming. For no shape, form, or fashion. Right. That's the language that was used, for no shape, form, or fashion. And to figure out how to make it each week. Okay. Because race was a real thing. Racism was really bad, probably yeah. more so than anything else. And I don't know if it was, if it was um, I don't know if that was healthy, but for me I could actually testify to the fact that that was not my orientation. That there wow. was this, there was this, um, gay folks was gonna go to hell. That did not, I never heard it. And I could probably ask my siblings if they remember it. And I could guarantee you that was never part of the language. I don't know if I heard about them going to hell. I don't, it wasn't, I think a lot about that. And I think a lot about, uh, of course, I would have to now. Um, but I think a lot about the way that I was raised in my United Methodist Church in Atlanta. We, there was a, there was a lot of sidebar conversations and, um, there were a lot of, yeah, a lot of sidebar conversations about sugar in the tank and comfortable shoes and um, that male usher board um, and the back row of uh, or or the front row of the male choir um, and all of these things had meaning. Um, and we all knew what that, you know, we all knew what they mean meant. So everybody sort of danced around it and, and people laughed at it. And that was 
I have to admit that was a hurtful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now I might've been in a different, you know, environment than you were in, but in Atlanta at that time, people were, people were allowed to be who they were, but there was always the, there were always these very difficult side conversations. And as a child, I, I didn't, people didn't keep things from me either. I was a nosy child. And so I'd be cleaning the kitchen when, you know, folk was sitting at the table, right. And would hear those conversations. And it was very clear um, that certain things were not, um, that, that there were silos, let's say it that way, that there were silos and that these people hung with these people and these people hung with those people. And that's sort of what I grew up with. Um, and it was, it was, it was hurtful. It was, it was hurtful. The same types of conversations that sometimes people had about single mothers, right? I, I, I was a single mother and I ended up leaving my church um, because I did not receive the support. And so then when I went back to one of my elders, you know, had these conversations with my elders, um, she was like, yeah, we, we really didn't treat um, those things the way we should have. And that felt much better um, to have an elder in the community say, yeah, we, we really didn't know how to support single mothers. We really didn't understand what to do with gay people. Um, so, you know, and that, that was, you know, high class cascade, you know, Atlanta. So I don't know. Those are still sort of difficult things for me to wrestle with in my old age. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it was a different experience for me. So, so, so here we are in the 21st century year, 2021. Mm-hmm. And we have not, we spent a whole year without being inside of a church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we, we, we weathered the storm of racial, racial insurgency that really, never went away. We always knew it was around. It just became more prevalent. Um, and, and we could, as sociologists could infer the handwriting was on the wall, like in the book of Daniel, the handwriting was on the wall when that funny man's name became not only Senator, but he became president. He was a funny name man. And right. so, you know, you get this, uh, tea party kind of running around, uh, with the, like chickens with the head cut off. But, um, and, and there was, and, and, and in, in the middle of all of this, we have, um, something to happen with the Supreme court that with marriage equality. And, um, we had a president who was a black man who originally didn't say a whole lot about, you know, one way or the other playing, you know, the, the, the sides as a politician would, but then the Supreme court ruled for marriage equality in 2015 and and all of a sudden we we uh even before that the episcopal church elects a a gay bishop and and that was like oh anybody with episcopal in their name we need to hurry up and come up with a position paper because we don't want to be associated with the episcopalians you know and um and then we get to this place of how do we our doctrinal uh, rules of order in the church is now in contradiction with the law of the land. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you, how do you 
coexist, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, um, in popular culture, uh, we, we're seeing more um, folks who are willing to honor the fluidity of identities and and we're multiple identities etc but then we still see this this church thing and and so fast forward we're in this pandemic and Mm -hmm. and folks are still living out loud whoever they are however they are their configuration of life uh, mm-hmm. The church has certainly become more interesting because we're not <laughs> located anywhere. Neither is God. So we're, we're reimagining a whole lot of stuff. So um, in the midst of all of this, here comes this, this young cat who <laughs> is breaking barriers with his old town road song. Okay. So that was, that was like interesting. The algorithms right. of his name, you know, folks will say he was kind of slick. You put Lil Nas X. Those are all algorithmic things that could yes. automatically get you a whole bunch of computer hits. So yes. genius. <laughs> then he pairs up with this country. And it, I don't know if it was a country song or not, but it was it was a song that made some charts and yada, yes. yada, yada. Now here we are with his interesting take with, mythology mm-hmm. uh a mythology that was given by white folks mm-hmm. this personification of mm-hmm. what the devil might look like mm-hmm. and uh and 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 he he's scaring folks in the church Ooh. and and it's like why y'all scared that's him I was gonna say, but why? why you scared <laughs> i mean come on Y'all scared of six six six? You scared of what? Red and black? I got on red and black today. What? What you scared of? What? Because right. he's singing a song. You didn't say anything about Billie Eilish or Demi Devado right. dancing with the devil. But right. Lil Nas X, what y'all scared of? Right. What's what? Right. What, what, what are we talking about here for real? Right. Yeah, they ain't saying. I mean, ain't said nothing for years. They ain't saying nothing about Rolling Stones, Sympathy for the Devil. No, they ain't saying nothing about Iron Madden. They ain't saying no. You know what I'm saying, come on now. I don't. I, you know, there have been there have been songs and movies about Satan since that mythology came up. There has been poetry about Satan that is still, you know, recited in high schools across the United States. I really don't understand what everybody's so upset about it. And I, you know, find myself being quite proud of Lil Nas X. Mm-hmm. Um, he is extremely intuitive. He is, he works this internet mm-hmm. like a, a little mad demon. He, uh, okay. Or a little <laughs> mad genius. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he knows what he is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, Shouts out to Lithia Springs, Georgia, you mm-hmm. know, but I don't, and he has a message mm-hmm. and, you know, I've been reading some of the things that he's been saying. He has planned, he has thought all of this Absolutely. out. Absolutely. What the response was going to be. He knew what that little Candace girl was going to say. She fell right into mm-hmm. it. He knew <laughs> mm-hmm. he pretty much could anticipate everything he's only 22 years old he's a genius yeah he's only 22 years old Mm -hmm. and so I don't understand 
what um, the issue is with not embracing him for the genius that he has, Mm -hmm. for the genius that he expresses, and for the ways that he talks about um, the Black community, Mm -hmm. the Christian community, and the ways that they have sent him messages about who he is all of his life. Is this a good time for me to just go ahead and say I'm gay? I'm not sure if, you know, that's all right to say on your show. Go ahead and say it. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, as, as there was an article at one point that says um, um, his aunties are proud of him, mm-hmm. right? His aunties in the gay community are proud of him. And I'm extremely proud. At some point, we have got to face, like I said, I went back. To, mm-hmm. to Atlanta, that was in 2014 when I was doing dissertation research, went back and um, had a, a really frank talk with someone who was a very, very close friend of my parents. Um, and, you know, the idea that any of us should be any less than who we are I'm not sure if that, and I'm still learning. I'm, I'm, I'm learning everything that I can about being a Christian. And I will be learning everything that I can about being a Christian until I die. I don't claim to know everything, but I cannot really fathom a God who, first of all, didn't know who I was when I was 15 and I was figuring it out. And who wouldn't be proud of me for who I am right now? Everything that I am. He he made everything that I am. So certainly, I, and, and you know, I, like I said, I ain't no expert in this. I'm a sociologist. I'm not a preacher. <laughs> but I would love to think that I could serve a God who loves me wholeheartedly for what I am and for who I am and for who I love and whatever. And that young man has a message for so many Christians who do the side eye and do the side conversations and do the, all the stuff about sugar in the tank and wearing comfortable shoes. <laughs> you know, he has, he has a, a commentary mm-hmm. for all of us in the ways that we treat difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we should really stop and take a listen to what he is saying because you know, we're going to trip up mm-hmm. if we continue to try to, you know, damn him mm-hmm. to hell. We're going to trip up and fall in ourselves. Lisa, I think, or Dr. Johnson, let me tell you, I think it's the packaging. I think it's the packaging. Okay. I think, I think that, that the, I think, I, at least I hope and pray that we are more evolved. Um, but I think it's the packaging. Uh, okay. If he if he if he didn't have as much melanin, it it might be acceptable. So I think that there is some there is some slave mentality stuff going on, uh, self hatred, okay. um, and self hatred. I think okay. it. I think it's more of. Uh, I I think it's if if he were not the melanated man that he was, it would be palatable, mm. and and he would be seen as brilliant for but both because, whites and blacks. Yeah. I really do. That's just my that's just my un, untutored experience uh, opinion. But I also I also um, I had a, a Bible study with my congregation, and I'm unorthodox in so many ways. And um, 
last week in Sunday school, it was about uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was about Ahab and Jezebel. And mm-hmm. so in our Bible study, we're finishing up First Kings. And mm-hmm. we're, at the, we're at the part after Solomon and all these interesting kings, the divided kingdom, et cetera. And so we get to Ahab. Mm-hmm. And Ahab is the son of Jeroboam. Mm-hmm. And 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 according to First Kings, the seventeenth chapter or something like that, says he's the worst king they ever had ever. Mm-hmm. And and then he marries Jezebel. Mm-hmm. And so I at the end of our Bible study, I said, "Now you all know how I'm going to spin this, right?" <laughs> I said Jezebel was did not influence Ahab. I don't care what the patriarchs tell you all about her. It was in Ahab's DNA. He was even before he married Jezebel. As a matter of fact, he brought Jezebel down. I'm just telling you the truth. If and sometimes people they take they 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 proof text and and not realizing this ain't even the totality. I mean, we know for a fact there are over 700 uh, uh, books dedicated to understanding the big God, mm-hmm. and that's and we got 66, 15 mm-hmm. extra if you're Catholic, the apocrypha right. at best. Right. And so it's complicated. And if we if we limit this big G.O.D. to time and space, location, uh, uh, denominational stuff, we have made the big G.O.D. just like us. And I don't need I don't need somebody that's transcended that created the universe to to think like me or act like me. I need something that's greater than me. So when mm-hmm. I can't get it, I can say, okay, well, you know, maybe right. it's maybe it's something different here. Maybe this and, and, and the beauty is this and I and that the first chapter of Genesis is so different than the second or third chapter. Because <laughs> the first chapter of the beginning says at the same time the big G O D created together mm-hmm. in the image. Mm-hmm. And what is this image of God? It's right. spirit. So why in the world I'm about to start cussing because I'm a cussing preacher? Why do we get caught up in this outward trappings so much so that we set up this whole thing? And at the end of the day, we're gonna all turn into dust, right? And it's our spirit that lives on. So why are we mad at Lil Nas X for his right. identity and right. his genius for living out who he is? Right. Why are we caught up in this? But we can give passes to people so who are imposters. Yeah. yeah. We can give a pass to Justin Timberlake. Yes. Who intentionally hurt Britney Spears and Janet Jackson's career. But we can right. give a pass. Okay. Right. But Lil Nas X-21. He get movies. He get movies. He get he movies. After that. Janet yeah. Jackson gets bleeped out and, and, and gets yeah. stuff you know, wardrobe malfunction forever yeah. attached to her, but he did it on purpose and he gets a pass. Yeah. And he's apologizing, doing an apology to her after the pandemic. Man, go someplace, kick some Crying someplace. Yes. Yeah. Crying on yeah. Yeah. Stop. But we're going to yeah. hurt this young man who's, who's figured out some stuff, who figured out how to live life on purpose. Are you kidding me? What yes. are we scared of? Yes. He, 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 he talks to us. Yeah. I think that, and, and you know, the, the video has been out for a, a week or however long now, and it's already busted, number one. Mm-hmm. The little shoes already sold. And even with the lawsuit, mm-hmm. <laughs> the shoes had already sold out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. This man has something to say 
to corporations because mm-hmm. that's what you and I had that conversation already. Yes. We started out with that conversation about corporations. Mm-hmm. He has something to say about corporations and, and their contractual agreements and their policies about who can sell what at what time. Mm-hmm. He has something to say to the United States about cultural appropriation mm-hmm. and stealing other people's culture for your own monetary commodification gains. Mm -hmm. He has something to say to your right blacks and whites Mm -hmm. about whom we accept for whom they are. Now it was all right. You know what? You might have a point because who's that little woman Gaga. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is that? (laughs) Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. She was able to do Madonna. Mm hmm able to do whatever Caitlyn Jenner gets right front covers of a magazine right and there's a little bit of fussing but then everybody goes out and supports them Uh and Uh everything is okay and I suppose that you are correct this little you know 22 year old Negro first of all first of all you got to go back to the first video Uh with the pink cowboy hat right right (laughs) (laughs) the pink Mm -hmm. you know stirrups and everything in the pink cowboy hat now he was saying something then exactly he was building to think that in three or four years he has built a story Mm -hmm. and drawn in so many people into the conversation Mm -hmm. um that's something that we ought to embrace right it really is and we need to to think that there are so many young people like him Mm -hmm. because he is he is representative at this point. He, mm-hmm. The fact that he sold out so quickly, the fact that he rose to the billboard charts, that means that he is speaking to someone and he is representing someone. And so, mm-hmm. some large group of people resonate with what he is saying. Mm-hmm. And so we need to hear that. We need to listen to that. And that is, that is the deep conversation. Don't silence him. Listen. Right. Listen to, and that's the gift of a sociologist, See who the society is that's leaning towards. What's the demographics? Right. And this this is the group that we don't have in our buildings that we're not in anyway. Right. <laughs> you know, if you could get 58 million people to watch a video, I don't even know. It's probably more than that. You get, download the video. No, that that's what you say. Downloaded and paid for. What it, you girl. talking about? No, they they you know all they, our budgets get paid. Uh, Come on, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know we want some of it. <laughs> tithe, man. Come on, get your tithe. Hey. <laughs> hey. something that he's trying to say several things that he's trying to say mm-hmm. he has several commentaries about life in the united states about hypocrisy about um i mean just everything you know i, I love the fact that there was a a jesus shoe with holy water right. from mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. <laughs> from the jordan that was and last was, year okay then there was mm-hmm. a satan shoe mm-hmm. with blood in it mm-hmm. like Mm-hmm. Is anybody listening? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why y'all there fussing so much? Mm-hmm. You just sit down and listen and read up and study a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
um, you might really find a whole language that youth are speaking mm-hmm. um, that we really need to take hold of. Mm-hmm. Particularly if we, you know, you're talking about our studies in the church, mm-hmm. particularly if we sit around complaining about losing members. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, the, okay, and, the, so, and the fact of the matter is the, the embodiment of evil right. is not... It, I, 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 I mean, maybe this is a blanket empirical statement, but I could almost infer through a sociological imagination mm-hmm. that black gay men have not been mass murderers. Yeah, I think. Um, I could almost infer that. Yeah, Young black gay men probably would not put the knee on the neck of anybody. I'm just, I'm just using my sociological imagination. I mean, we talking about the embodiment of evil, the personification. Don't do it. Of, of, you know, I I just don't think that, uh, uh, the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. community Mm -hmm. in the United States Mm -hmm. and probably around the world would not be the ones that would really think about taking over the doggone I, I just don't capital. You know, I just, come on, you know what I'm saying? And then spread fecal matter and all of that. And and just that's not unless I'm wrong. So Man. so we have placed this damning to hell. Mm-hmm. On the most vulnerable, on the right, and the least among us, right by society, right, and and it just it just blows me away. I don't think, unless I'm wrong, that that <laughs> I don't even. I, I'm just thinking this might be a research study for real. Yeah. How no. many in the no. LGBTQ community own guns? Thank you. How, how many? Thank you. I mean. Come on. So why are we afraid? This is xenophobia yeah. at its best. Let let me let me uh give you a little bit of conjecture for just a second. So you you're doing your sociological imagination. Let me gather a couple of hypotheses okay. to go with your sociological imagination. I would hypothesize that maybe this damning to hell is associated ever so loosely with the idea of marginalized communities actually speaking out against being marginalized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then if someone would have the audacity (laughs) to say that they are not being treated humanely, Mm. then we might want to attach some type of ideological supremacist (laughs) type of right statement Mm -hmm. that says that those are the people that should go to hell. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, right. Mm -hmm. If another certain group who is used to obtaining power, maybe that same certain group who has stolen from other people's culture, Mm -hmm. that same group who has stolen other people in general, then wrote policies and procedures that said no one else could steal from them. If they got whiff of the idea that someone might not be as inferior as they thought they were in the first place, those would be the people Mm -hmm. 
to get mad enough to start tearing stuff down mm-hmm. in their own country. Mm-hmm. We've seen it. Tulsa. Okay. We've seen it. Do, do we okay. need to go down Rosewood. the list? Rosewood. Do we need to go down the list? Okay. Ferguson. We've seen it. Do we okay. need to go down the list? Every single time they Ooh. get mad, they start tearing stuff up. Mm-hmm. But we speak up and we the ones going to hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we try so hard. Let me talk a little bit about respectability politics, if it, if you don't mind. Go ahead. We get so respectable sometimes that we buy into this ideology of superiority mm. without recognizing that we are falling into that same trap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then with that, that's how we end up, right, just talking about our own folks Mm -hmm. okay you know having this division among ourselves this person's a good person Mm -hmm. that person's a bad person because we don't drop the kool-aid yep Mm -hmm. those are just a couple of hypotheses we just throw on out with your sociological imagination (laughs) (laughs) and then i'm gonna i will bring up a quote that my daddy used to say he said when you take on the ways of the oppressor okay we, and I mean, I grew up hearing him say that, and I never really understood it until I got older. And I'm like, ooh, this is some wisdom right here. You know, the sidebar conversations my daddy used to say, you know, we got to be careful when we start taking on the ways of the oppressor and thinking like the oppressor has historically thought. We'll get, you know, get it twisted up. Don't you love the way the elders say ooh, stuff? And yeah. They just- yeah, just throw it out there, and they just gone about this. Yeah, just some deep <laughs> conversations. I mean, this was the this is the talk. I mean, you could talk about your you you know how they used to just sit around. It wasn't no. This was life before social media. Yeah, they talk about that stuff real hard and yeah. looking at the newspaper and reading it and and talk. Okay. I mean, it was some, front porch. Yeah, yeah. Front porch in Memphis. Be having all that. And they'll put the sweet tea out there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, Lisa, Um, we could, we could talk all night long and, uh, all day, all day. Um, but, but I, I just really wanted to hit this real quick on the little Nas X because that is, uh, what's happening right now. And, uh, and I, and I, heads off to the young man. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we, we Christians, little Nas, and we, we see you, little Nas X. We, we love you. You, you know, you good. <laughs> you all right. We gonna, we gonna support you as best we can. I've been playing your video in every class, about to have a, a theology of little Nas X at Allen St. John. <laughs> Go watch that Let's video. Go, I want to come. <laughs> All right, we pushed that thing. <laughs> All right, I'll play this end of music and then we're going to start with part two. All right. <laughs> it has been a privilege, a pleasure, and an honor to have you join in with us today. Remember, that everything will be all right until we meet again stay safe and well
I like that part. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Lisa Johnson, for breaking off that wisdom. 